0: Chapter 6 Of The People of the Black Circle by Robert E. Howard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The People of the Black Circle. Chapter 6 The Mountain of the Black Seers. Where now? Yasmina was trying to sit erect on the rocking saddlebow, clutching her captor. She was conscious of a recognition of shame that she should not find unpleasant the feel of his muscular flesh under her fingers. "'To Afghulistan,' he answered. "'It's a perilous road, but the stallion will carry us easily, unless we fall in with some of your friends or my tribal enemies. Now that Yar Afzal is dead, those damned Wazulis will be on our heels. I'm surprised we haven't sighted them behind us already.' Who is that man you rode down?' she asked. "'I don't know. I never saw him before. He's no ghoulie, that's certain. What the devil he was doing there is more than I can say. There was a girl with him, too.' "'Yes,' her gaze was shadowed. "'I cannot understand that. That girl was my maid, Gitara. Do you suppose she was coming to aid me? That the man was a friend?' If so, the Wazulis have captured them both." "'Well,' he answered, "'there's nothing we can do. If we go back, they'll skin us both. I can't understand how a girl like that could get this far into the mountains with only one man, and he a robed scholar, for that's what he looked like. There's something infernally queer in all this. That fellow Yar Afzal beat and sent away. He moved like a man walking in his sleep. I've seen the priests of Zamora perform their abominable rituals in their forbidden temples, and their victims had a stare like that man. The priests looked into their eyes and muttered incantations, and then the people became the walking dead men, with glassy eyes doing as they were ordered. And then I saw what the fellow had in his hand, which Yar afsal picked up. It was like a big black jade bead, such as the temple girls of Yazud wear when they dance before the black stone spider which is their god. ar Afzal held it in his hand, and he didn't pick up anything else. Yet when he fell dead, a spider, like the god at Yazud, only smaller, ran out of his fingers. And then, when the Wazuli stood uncertain there, a voice cried out for them to kill me, and I know that voice didn't come from any of the warriors nor from the women who watched by the huts. It seemed to come from above." Yasmina did not reply. She glanced at the stark outlines of the mountains all about them, and shuddered. Her soul shrank from their gaunt brutality. This was a grim, naked land where anything might happen. Age-old traditions invested it with shuddery horror for anyone born in the hot, luxuriant southern plains. The sun was high, beating down with fierce heat, yet the wind that blew in fitful gusts seemed to sweep off slopes of ice. Once she heard a strange rushing above them that was not the sweep of the wind, and from the way Conan looked up, she knew it was not a common sound to him either. She thought that a strip of the cold blue sky was momentarily blurred, as if some all but invisible object had swept between it and herself, but she could not be sure. Neither made any comment, but Conan loosened his knife in his scabbard. They were following a faintly marked path dipping down into ravines so deep the sun never struck bottom, laboring up steep slopes where loose shale threatened to slide from beneath their feet, and following knife-edge ridges with blue-hazed echoing depths on either hand. The sun had passed its zenith when they crossed a narrow trail winding among the crags. Conan reined the horse aside and followed it southward, going almost at right angles to their former course. A Galzai village is at one end of this trail, he explained. Their women follow it to a well for water. You need new garments. Glancing down at her filmy attire, Yasmina agreed with him. Her cloth of gold slippers were in tatters, her robes and silken undergarments torn to shreds that scarcely held together decently. Garments meant for the streets of Peshkari were scarcely appropriate for the crags of the Hymelians. Coming to a crook in the trail, Conan dismounted, helped Yasmina down and waited. Presently he nodded, though she heard nothing. "'A woman coming along the trail,' he remarked. In sudden panic, she clutched his arm. "'You will not—not kill her?' "'I don't kill women ordinarily,' he grunted, "'though some of the hill-women are she-wolves.' "'No,' he grinned as at a huge jest. "'By Crom, I'll pay for her clothes. How is that?' He displayed a large handful of gold coins, and replaced all but the largest. She nodded, much relieved. It was perhaps natural for men to slay and die. Her flesh crawled at the thought of watching the butchery of a woman. Presently a woman appeared around the crook of the trail, a tall, slim, galzai girl, straight as a young sapling, bearing a great, empty gourd. She stopped short, and the gourd fell from her hands when she saw them. She wavered as though to run, then realized that Conan was too close to her to allow her to escape and so stood still, staring at them with a mixed expression of fear and curiosity. Conan displayed the gold coin. If you'll give this woman your garments, he said, I will give you this money. The response was instant. The girl smiled broadly with surprise and delight, and, with the disdain of a hill-woman for prudish conventions, promptly yanked off her sleeveless embroidered vest slipped down her wide trousers and stepped out of them, twitched off her wide-sleeved shirt and kicked off her sandals. Bundling them all in a bunch, she proffered them to Conan, who handed them to the astonished Devi. "'Go behind that rock and put these on,' he directed, further proving himself no native hillman. "'Fold your robes up into a bundle and bring them to me when you come out.' "'The money!' Clamored the hill-girl, stretching out her hands eagerly. The gold you promised me! Conan flipped the coin to her, she caught it, bit, then thrust it into her hair, bent and caught up the gourd and went on down the path, as devoid of self-consciousness as of garments. Conan waited with some impatience while the Devi, for the first time in her pampered life, dressed herself. When she stepped from behind the rock, he swore in surprise, and she felt a curious rush of emotions at the unrestrained admiration burning in his fierce blue eyes. She felt shame, embarrassment, yet a stimulation of vanity she had never before experienced, and a tingling when meeting the impact of his eyes. He laid a heavy hand on her shoulder and turned her about, staring avidly at her from all angles. "'By Crom," said he. In those smoky, mystic robes you were aloof and cold and far off as a star. Now you are a woman of warm flesh and blood. You went behind that rock as the diva of and you come out as a hill-girl, though a thousand times more beautiful than any wench of the Zybar. You were a goddess, now you are real." He spanked her resoundingly and she, recognizing this as merely another expression of admiration, did not feel outraged. It was, indeed, as if the changing of her garments had wrought a change in her personality. The feelings and sensations she had suppressed rose to domination in her now, as if the queenly robe she had cast off had been material shackles and inhibitions. But Conan, in his renewed admiration, did not forget that peril lurked all about them. The farther they drew away from the region of the Zaibar, the less likely he was to encounter any Kshatriya troops. On the other hand, he had been listening all throughout their flight for sounds that would tell him the vengeful Wazulis of Kurum were on their heels. Swinging the Devi up, he followed her into the saddle and again reined the stallion westward. The bundle of garments she had given him he hurled over a cliff to fall into the depths of a thousand-foot gorge. "'Why did you do that?' she asked. "'Why did you not give them to the girl?' "'The riders from Peshkari are combing these hills,' he said. "'They'll be ambushed and harried at every turn, and by way of reprisal they'll destroy every village they can take. They may turn westward any time. If they found a girl wearing your garments, they'd torture her into talking, and she might put them on my trail." "'What will she do?' asked Yasmina. "'Go back to her village and tell her people that a stranger attacked her,' he answered. "'She'll have them on our track, all right. But she had to go on and get the water first. If she dared go back without it, they'd whip the skin off her. That gives us a long start. They'll never catch us.' By nightfall, we'll cross the Afghuli border." There are no paths or signs of human habitation in these parts, she commented. Even for the Hymelians, this region seems singularly deserted. We have not seen a trail since we left the one where we met the Galzai woman. For answer, he pointed to the northwest, where she glimpsed a peak in a notch of the crags. "'Imsha,' grunted Conan. The tribes build their villages as far from the mountains as they can." She was instantly rigid with attention. "'Yimshah,' she whispered, "'the mountain of the Black Seers!' "'So they say,' he answered. "'This is as near as I ever approached it. I have swung north to avoid any Kshtriya troops that might be prowling through the hills. The regular trail from Kurum to Afghulistan lies farther south this as an ancient one, and seldom used. She was staring intently at the distant peak. Her nails bit into her pink palms. How long will it take to reach Yimsha from this point? All the rest of the day and all night, he answered, and grinned. Do you want to go there? By Crom, it's no place for an ordinary human, from what the hill people say. Why do they not gather and destroy the devils that inhabit it? she demanded. Wipe out wizards with swords? Anyway, they never interfere with people, unless the people interfere with them. I never saw one of them, though I've talked with men who swore they had. They say they've glimpsed people from the tower among the crags at sunset or sunrise—tall, silent men, in black robes. Would you be afraid to attack them? I?" The idea seemed a new one to him. Why, if they imposed upon me, it would be my life or theirs. But I have nothing to do with them. I came to these mountains to raise a following of human beings, not to war with wizards. Yasmina did not at once reply. She stared at the peak as at a human being, feeling all her anger and hatred stir in her bosom anew. And another feeling began to take dim shape. She had plotted to hurl against the masters of Yimsha, the man in whose arms she was now carried. Perhaps there was another way, besides the method she had planned to accomplish her purpose. She could not mistake the look that was beginning to dawn in this wild man's eyes as they rested on her. Kingdoms have fallen when a woman's slim white hands pulled the strings of destiny. Suddenly she stiffened, pointing. Look! Just visible on the distant peak there hung a cloud of peculiar aspect. It was a frosty crimson in color, veined with sparkling gold. This cloud was in motion. It rotated, and as it whirled it contracted. It dwindled to a spinning taper that flashed in the sun. And suddenly it detached itself from the snow-tipped peak floated out over the void like a gay-hued feather, and became invisible against the cerulean sky. "'What could that have been?' asked the girl uneasily, as a shoulder of rock shut the distant mountain from view. The phenomenon had been disturbing, even in its beauty. "'The hillmen call it Yumsha's carpet, whatever that means,' answered Conan. I've seen five hundred of them running as if the devil were at their heels, to hide themselves in caves and crags, because they saw that crimson cloud float up from the peak." What in— They had advanced through a narrow, knife-cut gash between turreted walls and emerged upon a broad ledge, flanked by a series of rugged slopes on one hand, and a gigantic precipice on the other. The dim trail followed this ledge bent around a shoulder and reappeared at intervals far below, working a tedious way downward. And emerging from the cut that opened upon the ledge, the black stallion halted short, snorting. Conan urged him on impatiently, and the horse snorted and threw his head up and down, quivering and straining, as if against an invisible barrier. Conan swore and swung off, lifting Yasmina down with him. He went forward, with a hand thrown out before him, as if expecting to encounter unseen resistance, but there was nothing to hinder him, though, when he tried to lead the horse, it neighed shrilly and jerked back. Then Yasmina cried out, and Conan wheeled, hands starting to knife-hilt. Neither of them had seen him come, but he stood there, with his arms folded, a man in a camel-hair robe and a green turban. Conan grunted with surprise to recognize the man the stallion had spurned in the ravine outside the Wazuli village. "'Who the devil are you?' he demanded. The man did not answer. Conan noticed that his eyes were wide, fixed, and of a peculiar luminous quality. And those eyes held his like a magnet. Kempsa's sorcery was based on hypnotism, as is the case with most Eastern magic. The way has been prepared for the hypnotist for untold centuries of generations, who have lived and died in the firm conviction of the reality and power of hypnotism, building up by mass thought and practice a colossal, though intangible, atmosphere against which the individual, steeped in the traditions of the land, finds himself helpless. But Conan was not a son of the East. Its traditions were meaningless to him. He was the product of an utter alien atmosphere. Hypnotism was not even a myth in Sumeria. The heritage that prepared a native of the East for submission to the mesmerist was not his. He was aware of what Kemsa was trying to do to him, but he felt the impact of the man's uncanny power only as a vague impulsion, a tugging and pulling that he could shake off as a man shakes spider-webs from his garments. Aware of hostility and black magic, he ripped out his long knife and lunged, as quick on his feet as a mountain lion. But hypnotism was not all of Kemsa's magic. Yasmina, watching, did not see by what roguery of movement or illusion the man in the green turban avoided the terrible disemboweling thrust. But the keen blade wickered between side and lifted arm and to Yasmina it seemed that Kemza merely brushed his open palm lightly against Conan's bull neck. But the Cimmerian went down like a slain ox. Yet Conan was not dead. Breaking his fall with his left hand, he slashed at Kemza's legs even as he went down, and the Raksha avoided the scythe-like swipe only by a most unwizardly bound backward. Then Yasmina cried out sharply as she saw a woman she recognized as Gitara glide out from among the rocks and come up to the man. The greeting died in the Devi's throat as she saw the malevolence in the girl's beautiful face. Conan was rising slowly, shaken and dazed by the cruel craft of that blow, which, delivered with an art forgotten of men before Atlantis sank, would have broken like a rotten twig the neck of a lesser man. Kemsuk gazed at him cautiously and a trifle uncertainly. The Rakshah had learned the full flood of his own power when he faced at bay the knives of the Madden Wazulis in the ravine behind Kurum village. But the Cimmerian's resistance had perhaps shaken his new found confidence a trifle. Sorcery thrives on success, not on failure. He stepped forward, lifting his hand, then halted as if frozen. Head tilted back, eyes wide open, hand raised. In spite of himself, Conan followed his gaze. And so did the women. The girl cowering by the trembling stallion, and the girl beside Kemsa. Down the mountain slopes, like a whirl of shining dust blown before the wind, a crimson conoid cloud came dancing. Kemsa's dark face turned ashen. His hand began to tremble, then sank to his side. The girl beside him, sensing the change in him, stared at him inquiringly. The crimson shape left the mountain slope and came down in a long, arching sweep. It struck the ledge between Conan and Kemsa, and the Raksha gave back with a stifled cry. He backed away, pushing the girl Gatara back with groping, fending hands. The crimson cloud balanced like a spinning top for an instant whirling in a dazzling sheen on its point. Then without warning it was gone, vanished as a bubble vanishes when burst. There on the ledge stood four men. It was miraculous, incredible, impossible, yet it was true. They were not ghosts or phantoms. They were four tall men with shaven, vulture-like heads, and black robes that hid their feet. Their hands were concealed by their wide sleeves. They stood in silence, their naked heads nodding slightly in unison. They were facing Kemsa, but behind them Conan felt his own blood turning to ice in his veins. Rising, he backed stealthily away, until he could feel the stallion's shoulder trembling against his back, and the devite crept into the shelter of his arm. There was no word spoken. Silence hung like a stifling pall. All four of the men in black robes stared at Kemsa. Their vulture-like faces were immobile, their eyes introspective and contemplative. But Kemsa shook like a man in an ague. His feet were braced on the rock, his calves straining as if in physical combat. Sweat ran in streams down his dark face. His right hand locked on something under his brown robe so desperately that the blood ebbed from that hand and left it white. His left hand fell on the shoulder of Gitara and clutched in agony, like the grasp of a drowning man. She did not flinch or whimper, though his fingers dug like talons into her firm flesh. Conan had witnessed hundreds of battles in his wild life, but never one like this wherein four diabolical wills sought to beat down one lesser but equally devilish will that opposed them. But he only faintly sensed the monstrous quality of that hideous struggle. With his back to the wall, driven to bay by his former masters, Kemsa was fighting for his life with all the dark power, all the frightful knowledge they had taught him through long, grim years of neophytism and vassalage. He was stronger than even he had guessed, and the free exercise of his powers in his own behalf had tapped unsuspected reservoirs of forces, and he was nerved to super-energy by frantic fear and desperation. He reeled before the merciless impact of those hypnotic eyes, but he held his ground. His features were distorted into a bestial grin of agony, and his limbs were twisted as on a rack. It was a war of souls, of frightful brains steeped in lore, forbidden to men for a million years, of mentalities which had plumbed the abysses and explored the dark stars where spawned the shadows. Yasmina understood this better than did Conan, and she dimly understood why Kemsa could withstand the concentrated impact of those four hellish wills which might have blasted into atoms the very rock on which he stood. The reason was the girl that he clutched with the strength of his despair. She was like an anchor to his staggering soul, battered by the waves of those psychic emanations. His weakness was now his strength. His love for the girl, violent and evil though it might be, was yet a tie that bound him to the rest of humanity, providing an earthly leverage for his will, a chain that his inhuman enemies could not break. At least, not break through Kemsa. They realized that before he did. And one of them turned his gaze from the Raksha full upon Gitara. There was no battle there. The girl shrank and wilted like a leaf in the drought. Irresistibly impelled, she tore herself from her lover's arms before he realized what was happening. Then a hideous thing came to pass. She began to back toward the precipice facing her tormentors, her eyes wide and blank as dark gleaming glass from behind which a lamp has been blown out. Kemsa groaned and staggered toward her, falling into the trap set for him. A divided mind could not maintain the unequal battle. He was beaten, a straw in their hands. The girl went backward, walking like an automaton, and Kemsah reeled drunkenly after her hands vainly outstretched, groaning, slobbering in his pain, his feet moving heavily like dead things. On the very brink she paused, standing stiffly, her heels on the edge, and he fell on his knees and crawled whimpering toward her, groping for her to drag her back from destruction. And just before his clumsy fingers touched her, one of the wizards laughed like the sudden bronze note of a bell in Hell. The girl reeled suddenly, and, consummate climax of exquisite cruelty, reason and understanding flooded back into her eyes, which flared with awful fear. She screamed, clutched wildly at her lover's straining hand, and then, unable to save herself, fell headlong with a moaning cry. Kemsa hauled himself to the edge and stared over, haggardly, his lips working as he mumbled to himself. Then he turned and stared for a long minute at his torturers, with wide eyes that held no human light. And then, with a cry that almost burst the rocks, he reeled up and came rushing toward them, a knife lifted in his hand. One of the Rakshas stepped forward and stamped his foot. And as he stamped, there came a rumbling that grew swiftly to a grinding roar. Where his foot struck, a crevice opened in the solid rock that widened instantly. Then, with a deafening crash, a whole section of the ledge gave way. There was a last glimpse of Kemsa, with arms wildly upflung, and then he vanished amidst the roar of the avalanche that thundered down into the abyss. The four looked contemplatively at the ragged edge of rock that formed the new rim of the precipice, and then turned suddenly. Conan, thrown off his feet by the shudder of the mountain, was rising, lifting Yasmina. He seemed to move as slowly as his brain was working. He was befogged and stupid. He realized that there was a desperate need for him to lift the Devi on the black stallion and ride like the wind. But an unaccountable sluggishness weighted his every thought and action. And now the wizards had turned toward him. They raised their arms, and to his horrified sight they saw their outlines fading, dimming, becoming hazy and nebulous, as a crimson smoke billowed around their feet and rose about them. They were blotted out by a sudden whirling cloud, and then, he realized, that he too was enveloped in a blinding crimson mist, and he heard Yasmina scream and the stallion cried out like a woman in pain. The devi was torn from his arm, and as he lashed out with his knife blindly a terrific blow, like a gust of storm wind, knocked him sprawling against a rock. Dazedly he saw crimson conoid clouds spinning up and over the mountain slopes. Yasmina was gone and so were the four men in black. Only the terrified stallion shared the ledge with him. End of chapter 6